Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello. Yes, yes, yes. This is new. Haven't heard me yet. This is Gali. You're on History Hack. Uh, I'm here with Alina. Hey, Alina. Hi, Gali. I'm so excited. And I've asked you for a very specific reason, because we have a very interesting guest, someone who I met a couple of weeks ago in London. And I said, yeah, you've got to come on to this podcast because we have done nothing, nothing about this at all. It's a gap that's got to be filled. So with us is Kit, who's an author and historian, and he's written his first book before we were trans. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. And that's why I brought you, Gally, because you have a better understanding of this type of history rather than me. I'm the outsider here. That's fine. Kit, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Total delight to be here. Total delight to be chatting with you and Gally about this. It's really interesting because I was doing a podcast literally a couple of days ago when we were talking about whitewashing certain aspects of women's history. This is a type of history that has been completely whitewashed out of history and completely misinterpreted. And I thought it was time for us to kind of hash this out with two people that are both historians, because if you don't know who Galley is, <laughs> head back to many of our episodes where Galley has come and done lots of archaeology and myth busting and everything else. So oh, actually, Galley's a historian and an archaeologist, so which kind of hits two birds with one stone, right? Yeah, yeah, it's I'm more of an archaeologist, but uh, yeah, you know, you have you need one to have the other to go together. Oh, don't tell that to some archaeologists; they might get the right the right ump about that. Well, we don't want to talk to those archaeologists. They're just a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> right. Okay. Look, let's, we've got some questions in front of us. Let's do a bit of chatting about this. Now, I went to a conference a couple of years, uh, I think it might have been last year, where we were trying to hash out the terminology. And I think terminology here is really important because we use the word trans today. But what kind of terminology was used? What can we use in a historical context? And what is this discussion? around this i'm going to throw this to kit first and then gally i know you're a host but i'd also like you to get involved in this a little bit but kit hit us off so this is a complicated conversation partly because of the political context that we're working in right so we're in a context where part of a really essential part of the anti-trans discourse um in the western world particularly today is based around the idea that transness is new that there is no trans history um and so therefore, because it's new, either we don't take it seriously or we have to you know, make new laws to protect society against this new threat. Um, so we have to be really careful when we're talking about trans history, because if we very simply say, 
okay, well, trans is a new term, therefore there were no trans people in the past. We play right into the hands of those political opponents, right? On the other hand, if we are to use terminology um, that's modern and Western, let's not forget, you know, you say that we use the word trans today, we do in Western culture, but concepts are different um, between different cultures. So if we are to apply this term to people who didn't use it about themselves, that also, for me, shows a particular kind of disrespect. Um, it shows that we're not trying to understand those people on their own terms and take them on their own terms. Um, and as trans people today, you know, we all know how it feels to be referred to in terms that don't feel right for us. Why would we want to do that to people in the past in the same way? So it's a difficult line that we're walking. Um, my perspective on this is that we separate out what we're talking about and we think, we might not be able to talk about people in the past as trans people, but we absolutely can talk about this history as trans history. So I wouldn't personally describe someone as trans if they didn't use that word about themselves, because that feels like a way of showing respect and care for that person that, okay, I'm gonna see you on your own terms. I'm not gonna impose something upon you that is my terms. Um, but I do think it's really, really important to say, okay, there is lots of trans history. There is lots of history that shows us that people have always been messing with gender, have always been living as genders different from the ones they were assigned at birth, that gender has always been something that we can play with, that's unstable, that's messy, that's not tied to the body. Um, and that's trans history. And by making that distinction, I think we can walk that difficult line between making sure we don't play into the hands of transphobic people who say that trans is new, but also making sure that we show those people in the past a bit of respect. Um, that's my perspective. And I think it's kind of up for debate and conversation. And I'm really, really interested in what other people think about that. What kind of thoughts are you having about this, Gally? Well, I do agree with most of what I say. I did think when you were talking that most today, most people who are like the whole gender critical movement, um, they're, currently they're more offended by the use of the word cis, which is funny. It's like you invented a word and cis is an ancient Latin word that no one invented except the Romans 2,000 years ago, so it's funny to me. Um, what you're talking about, we also, in archaeology, we have, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's called the, the binary bind, if you've heard about it. Mm. It's basically, we are um, using our terminology and just putting it on ancient cultures, which didn't necessarily uh, see it that way. It might be the same, it might not, but we know of gender fluidity in the Egyptian culture, in the Egyptian underworld, and the whole concept of how Egyptians move in the underworld, there is a factor of gender. Women, for example, had to change gender to progress in the underworld because only the male can, because the male is the replay. It's complicated. I'm not going to do it all now. Um, but basically, I agree with you. And, and again, I have the same take as you. I mean, you just go with the person and, you know, if someone, if the word trans isn't right for someone for any reason whatsoever, it's not even my business why. Um, it's just not, we don't use it. I think we use the word trans for history because it's it's comfortable and people know what we're talking about. So so I don't see anything wrong with that. It's, just, it's, it's a definition. It's a word that says, okay, if I tell someone I'm talking about transgenders 5,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, then they know what I'm talking about. That's all it is. It doesn't mean that they call themselves transgenders. Yeah, 100%. And that aspect of people know what we're talking about, that is really important because there's a difference as well between doing academic history where we might talk about things in really kind of nuanced term, um, mm -hmm. terms and talking in a public setting where we're dealing with not only, you know, people's capacity to understand what we're talking about, but also people's feelings like 
when we're talking about trans people, we're talking about a group of people who haven't always had access to community in the present, right? And so being able to feel like, okay, I have community with the past, there are people in the past who I can resonate with, actually using that word as a point of connection feels to me really important anyway. Yeah. I have a question to throw into this. So what if somebody who, for example, in the 1930s was, their gender was a woman, but they decided to dress very masculine and they presented themselves very male orientated and completely threw aside the women but they the, the 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 female sort of side but they completely and utterly didn't associate as either it sounds a little bit complicated but does that make sense yeah, yeah. how would you how would you classify that person because that person i don't even think that person would have used the terminology that we use today right. where would we put that person into context I would classify that person in whatever terms they used themselves. Um, and there, you know, there are contextual terms. So in the 1930s, um, depending on um, what they wanted to do sexually, um, and if they were in um, a Western context, that person might have described themselves as an invert, um, that's possible. But I, and the term invert really, it doesn't have an exact analogue today. It's not a translation of gay at all. It's got aspects of gay, aspects of trans, aspects of intersex. Uh, but I would want to use the terms that person used themselves, but I would want to look at that and say, isn't this a fascinating example of how people have always had the capacity to live as a gender different from the one they were assigned at birth? So this tells us a lot about the fact that the way we think about gender today is not fixed. It's not the only default way of thinking about it. Um, and so that's still a really interesting trans history of gender for me. I think that if we're talking about contemporary, then he, he, she would be regarded as what we call, it's a word that we don't use today anymore too much. It's called transsexual. I mean, if you go to the whole famous, big, important researches uh, of Magnus Hirschfeld, then, then he was talking about transsexuals all the time. That's, that's the terminology they used then, 1920s, 30s, Berlin, you know, the famous Eldorado and whatever. So. Okay, let's talk a little bit about one of your first points. That was that first question was mine, and I just thought it was important for us to be able to define that. But what about the main thrust of work each of you do around trans history? What do you specifically look at when it comes down to this type of history? So I guess what I'm most interested in is finding ways to talk about the messy histories that don't fit into modern or western trans category so exactly like that imaginary person from the 1930s that you just brought up then um when we talk about trans history in kind of um common parlance most of the time we're talking about people who have lived as a gender different from the one they were assigned at birth in a really stable way so they've transitioned once and then they've adhered to all the stereotypes of their new gender they've accessed any medical treatment they possibly could so it's a really medicalized history normally um Normally, we only talk about people in Western contexts because that enables them to fit easily into Western trans boxes. Um, so the reason I wrote before we were trans and the um, reason that I really wanted to think outside of these boxes, I think that's a very, very limiting way of thinking about trans history. Um, or, and it props up the idea that the only people who are, quote unquote, really trans are people who tick those boxes of having a binary gender, of adhering to all those stereotypes, of going through all those medical transition options that they possibly can. Um, and actually very, very few real trans people in our modern day live up to all of those stereotypes, live up to all of those criteria. Um, 
what we're doing is we're taking our contemporary idea of what counts as a quote unquote really trans person and we're mapping it back onto history. And then we're missing all of these other people like your imaginary person from the 1930s who is still doing really interesting things with gender. We just can't quite fit them easily into a box. Um, so my work around trans history is really about trying to tackle head on those messy histories and those histories that could be interpreted in more than one way as well. That person in the 1930s, maybe they were living in that way because that was how they felt on the inside. Maybe they were also living in that way because living as a man enabled them to access more economic opportunities, or they really enjoyed the fashion sense of masculine fashion, or it enabled them to access relationships with women that they really wanted to have. So we've got all these overlaps between trans history and lesbian history and the history of women defying the patriarchy. And history can be all of those things. You know, we don't have to put it in one box or the other. We can say, this is an example of all of those kinds of history together. And that's kind of also what I'm interested in. That is, yeah, I think while the whole doesn't fit into a box thing, um, I think a lot of, we're having a lot of emphasis on trans today because of the quote unquote cultural war, let's call it, um, that I assume you just like me are heads on in it uh, on a daily basis. Um, and basically, that was my initiative because I was sick of hearing people saying, it's new, like you said earlier, new transit, new transit, new, blah, 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 blah. And I said, I'm an archaeologist. I have all this knowledge and tools. And I started digging as archaeologists do, only in books. And it goes so back. I mean, my research currently starts 5,000 years ago with archaeological proven data about transgendered or if you want to call it gender fluid non-binary people i mean people that do not fit into the boxes of male or female man woman uh very hetero christian western definition that idea of fitting into a box is quite important especially i'm going to give a different example for example if we look at ancient greece were all men gay Right. If you look at the pottery and look at the archaeological evidence, you have met two men. For example, you never see people engaging physically. And yes, I know you're pointing your it's finger. A different, it's a different issue altogether because this is a cultural norm where women were perceived as lesser than men. So you had sex with women if you wanted to procreate. But if you want to have sex for fun, you don't do it with someone who's beneath you. You do it with someone who's on your same cultural level. And that's a man. This it's is it. And that's what I'm, I'm trying to say. It, but my point here is that you don't fit it into a box because if you look at the archaeological evidence, you would think, oh my God, all the Greeks, well, they were all they were all gay. That's it. That's that's how the archaeological evidence is going to be interpreted. But it's not. It's not fit into one whole box. What you've just explained there is it doesn't fit into an all. So why are we pushing every single part of history into this one tiny little, I'm not saying that we're doing it, but why are historians and archaeologists pushing everything into one tiny little box to say it is either A or B? Can there not be a great, but can there not be a great area in the middle where it could be A, B, C, D, E, F, and even Z, for example? Archaeologists don't like gray areas. Most of them don't like, because archaeologists, most of them have a hard time saying, we don't know. You've been on excavations, Alina. Kate, yeah. you been on excavation? No, ever, I haven't. Tell me about if it. If you ever go to an excavation and the archaeologist explains the whole site to you, know that they're lying. It, it can't happen. You never know everything. And that's where the boxes don't fit. 
So it's easy. They want to put it in boxes because it's easy to explain. So they come up with all kinds of stuff. That's how you get people like Graham Hancock because he has to explain everything. It's everything is. But and not... it's challenging, isn't it? The idea that, re- I mean, really, it sounds like what you're saying about ancient Greece is it's not so much we need to not put people into boxes as we need to remake different boxes. Ancient Greece just had different boxes. Um, but it's really, really hard to step out of a world with your boxes and into a world where you have to start with the flat pack and make the boxes anew, you know? That's really, yeah, that's, really that's challenging. Actually a, that's actually a good remark, yeah. Yeah, you're right. And we have to stop making things and try to understand them with our modern with our modern brains, basically. Stop applying modern-day moralities and thought into ancient history. And I had literally the same conversation yesterday where we were talking about uh, phalluses, for example. Stop thinking it's all about sex because it's not. It could be some completely different interpretation. No, so the, Roman phalluses, the Roman phalluses were, were good luck and, and safeguard amulets. Kids would walk around with small phalluses on their necks. I mean... Give a kid today a small phallus on their neck and social services will come and take him from you. Oh, sorry, I have, to, I have to get the laughter out. But it, no, but it's true. This is this is it. We're putting our modern views onto ancient history, onto Middle Ages, onto all different aspects, even the bloody 1930s and 1940s, where mm-hmm. things were completely and utterly different than they are today. I mean, what even in the 60s and 70s, things were still different. Absolutely. And every culture has its own boxes as well. So it's not just thinking across time. It's also thinking across place and thinking across different ways of thinking. Um, we talked in our little introduction about um, Hijra in India, who are so often kind of wheeled out as an example of, look, genderism, binary, here are some, um, here are some people from India who prove our point. Um, and a lot of the conversation that Hijra and activists who work with them uh, having now is about the kind of double-edged sword of using the word trans to talk about Hijra. On the one hand, you use the word trans to talk about them, there's access to a lot of kind of global comprehensibility, everyone across the globe can understand what you're talking about, and you also tick a lot of boxes to access funding, if you fit into the LGBT acronym. On the other hand, you use a Western concept for an Indian experience and you're flattening and homogenizing a lot of the aspects of that experience. Um, and you end up with um, importing expectations from the West, like, oh, you're a better or more real trans person if you've had particular kinds of medical procedure that really, really would not automatically apply um, to that culture. So we're talking about making new boxes, not only for different times, but also for different places, I think. Basically, it's like neo-colonialism. It's just cultural colonialism. Sure. That's what it is. It's a different way of coming and saying, look, we know better. Listen to us and do this. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about this. We've touched on this already. Evidence. Let's talk a little bit about evidence. I'm going to break this up. So let's talk about uh, evidence for trans history within text. What have we got when we talk about that? So... As a not archaeologist, as a person who does words, not things, um, this is this is very much my domain. And what's interesting about it is you have to learn to think like the people who were writing the text. And that means two things. It means firstly learning what kind of terminology was used in a particular place in a particular time, but also remembering that most of the time the people who are writing the texts are not the people who are having the trans or gender nonconforming experience. They are people looking at it from the outside. So they're using pejorative terms. They're using terms that people wouldn't really necessarily have used about themselves. Um, 
So you, you're you really, really reading against the grain in a lot of ways. Not only are you um, kind of looking for, not only are you looking for evidence that are often censoring or hiding that evidence, as we've said, but you're also looking for, okay, if this person said, if this text says that um, this person behaved in a filthy way, did that person who was doing that behavior actually experience it as filthy? Or was actually what was going on in their head something different and more nuanced? So you're having to really kind of look at perhaps descriptions of the way people acted and then think through, okay, if they acted in that way, what does that mean went on in their heads? And also do a lot of kind of exercise in empathy. Um, one, just to give one example, one of my favorite stories that, um, that I tell in the book, and one of my favorite stories from trans history really, is a person who went sometimes by the name of Thomas and sometimes by Thomasine Hall. And they were born in Newcastle, but they immigrated to um, Virginia in North America in the 17th century. Um, and the reason we know about this person at all is because um, they turn up in a court record in the early 17th century and they turn up as saying in a court of law, I am both man and woman, which is really, really fascinating. So we have um, this person declaring in a court of law, I am both man and woman. And what they seem to have meant, if you look at the court records, they seem to have meant both I live sometimes as a man and sometimes as a woman, and also my body is intersex, so my body is different from um, what that society thought of as male or as female. What is brilliant about that text, though, is we don't know the absolute details of what was going on with Thomas or Thomasine's body, because there's a hole in the manuscript at that precise place. Um, and I think that's brilliant because it preserves the dignity and the ambiguity of that person's body in exactly the way that they wanted to. They want to be known as I am both man and woman. And that's all we know because that's the nature of the textual record. So most of the time we're reading against the grain, but sometimes brilliantly, the textual records can actually kind of help us to just preserve the dignity and the self-definition of people in exactly the way they wanted to. You, you remind, it reminds you of the story of Eleanor Riker. Yes. It's also a lovely story where the court didn't know what to do with her. court had yes. no idea. It's, it's, this, it's a biological male who would dress up as a woman and work as a prostitute on the street. And and she was actually trialed for, I'm not even sure if it was for prostitution or for or for the gender. Uh, I think tried for sodomy. Um, so for, sodomy, for being yeah. quote unquote a man. Um, and we have sex court records where the where the court actually doesn't know how to refer. <laughs> in so the male sometimes, and the female. yeah, absolutely. So you get she sometimes, you get he sometimes, but yeah, that is brilliant. It's an example of the court record preserving um the kind of the gender ambiguity and the gender fluidity of the person they're talking about because sometimes you get she pronouns and sometimes you get he pronouns in the text yeah yeah okay let's move on to uh arche let's move on to galley's subject a little bit of archaeological what evidence is there in archaeological sites digs what evidence is there available There's so many um if you go way back to mesopotamia and you have what we call this is not this is not self-serving. They're called the Gali priests. Um, actually, priests who who are male in body but would uh, present themselves as females and take part in rituals which were originally designated for females. Um, 
There's a fascinating story about a site called uh, uh, Hassan Lutepe in Iran, um, which was actually conquered and all the people were, were, were murdered. And you can also see graves and people just who were murdered in the streets. And the skeleton is without a doubt male, but all the attributes um, you can find, jewelry and stuff like that, according to that period, we're talking Iron Age, we're talking about 800 BCE, um, is all is all feminine um if you go uh closer in history you have um the famous birka warrior ever heard of the birka warrior from sweden um it's lovely it's it's a tomb of a warrior found in the 60s and automatically you have a skeleton and you have swords and you have axes and okay so this is a male but then you have dna tests made in the last 15 years i think 15 20 years ago which proved without a doubt this is a female Biologically, this is a female, but all the attributes are male. So now people are like, uh, okay, so is this a woman who was a fighter or was this just a, f- a, f- a female body with um, uh, presenting as a man? So it's, it's all these things. The, the problem with, with gender and archaeology is this, that archaeology is a find and fact-based science. So determining the sex is fairly simple. You have the skeleton Today, we I, I worked with cultural anthropologists, physical anthropologists who actually came to the site, would look at the skeleton and five seconds tell you, okay, this is female, she was about 25 and she died because she had Alzheimer's. I don't know, okay? Just throwing things. But gender, gender is a thought. Gender is an idea. Gender is a sense of self. How do you find that in archaeology? You have to look at the finds. Can you count on clothes? Not so much. Clothes are... It's like Kit said earlier. It's 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 gendered and it moves. And I mean, once men would wear high heels, and today it's women who wear high heels. So you know, how can you count on the clothes? Um, it's the various aspects around that we know for us fairly surely certainty that we can count on, like weapons, certain types of jewelry, certain things like that. Those help us understand. And the thing is that we're going back now. My whole research is actually really, it's not that complicated. I'm going back to things that were already found a long time ago, but nobody actually asked the question is of what is the gender? Let's look at this through a gender lens and does this change the picture? And, and a lot of times it does. And again, I'm not even getting at the whole complicated Egyptian stuff because they just like to complicate things for the fun of it. So it's, it's and it's also, you know, you have, you have, Gender fluid gods. It's what God, what what gender is God? The Hebrew God. What gender is he? She, they. You made a really good point there. It's all about thought, and I want to run with that a little bit because in text, it's a little bit easier to find and be able to understand and interpret easier. With yours, Galley, it's like, where do you go with this? Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say here. Yes, but it also coincides. For example, the famous Roman emperor, Elgabalus, everybody knows his story. He would go to the to bar at night dressed as a woman and try to have sex, just like Eleanor Riker, just 2,000 years earlier. Um, and, you know, he would want to be referred to as a lady. Some accounts even say that he um, asked uh, to have actual gender reaffirming surgery to actually change his genitalia. That, what about the? I'm going to get this right. It's Nero, Nero's 
hold on, it was a young ma- young boy that changed gender to being a young woman. Is it Nero? No, it's Elgamalus. No, no, no. They had a girlfriend who was biologically male. Was it Nero? I don't remember that one. I'm remember. not sure about that. No, I mean, and it's difficult, isn't it, with Roman um, history, because a lot of the time when they're talking about someone as being feminine or wanting to be a woman, that's one of the main things they're saying is this person is doing man wrong. This person is doing masculinity inadequately. Um, and so when you look at the sources, you've got to think about them with that in mind as well. The, the Vikings have a word for that. It's called Erdu. It's a man who is not behaving manly. I didn't okay. even know that. That's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you also have Byzantine monks. You know, there, there's at least two famous Byzantine monks. There's Marina, the monk, who was actually a boy um, who went to the monastery with his father. Uh, no, a girl went to the monastery with, his, with her father, and she dressed up, presented as a boy, so she could enter the monastery. And she lived there for 40 years as a boy. The only... They only found out it was a girl when they came to bury her and undressed her. And given Just how long that person lived as a boy, I mean, what the other, we talked about language, the other issue is pronouns. What pronouns should we be using for this person? Do we use the ones they use for most of their life? Do we use well, they then because we're not sure? It's really, I think it's really interesting. In in my opinion, when, when I write these things, um, like let's say Marina the monk, uh, with Marino, I go for, for him in. Him, because that's it's the only way to actually talk about it logically when I'm telling the story that this is a girl who presented as a boy as a man for 40 years. Um, yeah, I would agree. If I that. would write about Riker, I would say she, her. Yeah, I would agree with that too. We're already touching on the subject before the 20th century history. Let's stick with this topic. Why do we not hear? Why do we hear very little of it? pre-20th century history? I think it's because, so today, we have a very particular idea about what counts as a real trans person. And that particular idea has essentially been formed by mid-20th century medicine, right? So um, our all of all of our criteria for what counts as a real trans person are, you have to be, um, you have to have a binary gender identity, you have to adhere to all the stereotypes of that identity, you have to have always known that you were trans and once you transitioned, you have to be completely stable and not change your mind and not kind of um, not play around with gender at all. Um, you have to ideally be heterosexual. Um, you have to, that is, you know, in your, in your new gender, not according to the gender you're assigned I don't, tick, I don't tick any of your boxes, kid. What do we do? No, what do nor we do? do I. What it's do we such do? such a problem. And <laughs> <laughs> nor do most trans people. And yet yeah. we still we have we still have this idea of what makes some proper trans person, what makes someone the best kind of the most real kind of trans person. And it's all from mid-20th century diagnostic criteria. And it's really slipped into popular culture and into the way that people think. And we end up, just like we talked about, mapping that idea back onto the past. And we can't find any people if we use those criteria. Nobody's gonna live up to that. Um, I, I have, I have, I want to interject a, a, a semi follow up question. Do you think there is some kind of, let's call it, Christian church interest in this, like the whole, uh, you know, heteromonogamous family uh, units, blah blah blah? That that's that's what led into this whole presumption. I think absolutely, and um, particularly the, yeah, again, we're talking about a kind of 
mid 20th century, predominantly American diagnostic criteria. Yes, so we're talking yes, about very. yeah, American kind of um, evangelical Protestant ideas, um, which involve really entrenched assumptions about gender roles. And that's one of the reasons I think that we end up with these ideas, okay, to be a real trans man or a real trans woman, you have to absolutely live up to those entrenched gender roles. Yeah, I think there's got to be something to do with it. I think we should, uh, we've been talking about favourite stories from the earlier periods. So let's continue with that because I find this really interesting coming from both of you. And I, which, whichever way you guys want to swing in the sense of, I don't know if Gally wants to go first or Kit wants to go first. Kit, you're, you're, you're the guest. I've told you one of my favourites so let me tell you let me tell you another one we've talked quite a bit about the way that these ideas were different in different cultures Um, and so I'll tell you one that's not from Western culture but it's from a similar time period because my real specialism is early modern history 16th and 17th century so one of my other favourite stories and this is one with which I kind of start the first chapter of Before We Were Trans um is the story of Njinga Mbande, who was a West African monarch. I say West African advisedly. The country where the kingdom that they ruled um, is now part of Angola, um, but it was called Ndongo at the time Angola didn't exist. And I also say monarch advisedly, um, because Njinga was assigned female at birth, but when they ascended to the throne, they were not queen, they were king. And this is interesting, I think, for a couple of reasons. First of all, Because it's an example of how, in many times and places, the actual social role that you had affected the way that people understood your gender. Um, We actually see this in Western culture, too. If you look at the way Elizabeth I talks about herself, and I will say herself because that's predominantly the pronoun that Elizabeth used, but Elizabeth talks about herself as prince and king because the role of monarch was gendered male. So by becoming monarch, by taking on the power, Elizabeth had become slightly more male in early modern English imagination. But Njinga, in their culture, was absolutely the same. By becoming monarch, the role of king, the role of monarch was male. So regardless of what you were assigned at birth, when you became monarch, you became more male. But the other thing that's interesting about Njinga's story is it wasn't just about, okay, I'm going to adhere to the norms of my culture. Because Njinga was also monarch in a time when the Portuguese were trying to colonize the kingdom of Ndongo. And the Portuguese came from a very patriarchal culture where if you were a man, they were going to take you way more seriously. Um, So being male was not only something that kind of lived up to the norms of Njinga's culture, it was also something that was a really good strategic decision. If you're trying to negotiate with a patriarchal society, being a man is going to really, really help with that. Um, so the reason I love Njinga's story is because it shows us not only the way that we should think about social role as something that does affect, the, um, in many cultures and, and times, does affect the way that people are gendered, but also it shows how factors like colonialism can affect the gender decisions that people make. Um, and it shows us a really good example of, I think often the way we talk about the relationship between colonialism and gender nonconformity is, oh, we had all these gloriously diverse genders and then, you know, um, Western colonialism happened and suppressed all of them. And in some places, that is very much the story. But also, if that's the only story we tell, that kind of just makes the people in the colonized cultures out to be victims with no kind of resilience or agency. And 
actually in Jinga's story shows they were doing something a bit more complicated and a bit more resilient and interesting than that. Um, so that, yeah, that's all of the reasons that I think that's a really interesting story to tell. Can I add a comment in here before Gary jumps in with hers? So I, when you were talking about, I'm going to say the name wrong completely, completely. Njinga Mbande. Thank you. Basically, isn't that very similar to the ideology, and Gally's probably going to say, no, you're wrong, with Egyptian pharaohs. So when a woman came to power, it was a male role. So instantly that woman would therefore become a man. Is, am I making this? No, no, no. No, no, I'll, you want, I'll talk about it because there's actually a, yeah. a nice anecdote that I know because Kid writes about Hatshepsut in his book. Um, everybody writes about Hatshepsut because yeah, yeah. Um, wrongly so, she's perceived as the first female uh, pharaoh, which she wasn't. There was Snebnik before her, but she was really short-lived. Um, Hatshepsut is basically queen regent um, to Khutmos III. And the thing is that a lot of people know her story. She's a female. Uh, she rose to the role of pharaoh. And she would present herself with pharaonic attributes in her sculptures, sphinxes. She's, uh, by the way, she's the only a royal female in Egypt to have a sphinx. And she would have, like, the male pharaoh beard and headdress, but you would still see the female breasts on the body. The thing is that I, what I want to say, and I don't want to talk about Khatshepsut because... Um, it's it's an, I also mention it because you can't really write about gender in ancient times and not mention the Um The thing is the story with uh, the graffiti and her advisor. Do you know the story, Kit? So she has the famous uh, burial temple, uh, mortuary temple built in Deir al-Walakh. Um, huge, huge, beautiful building. And for some years already, um, a lot of researchers are uh, actually stating that Khatshepsut was just a front. And there was actually a guy behind her running the business, her advisor, her chief advisor. Um, and this just plays into everything that Kit said about the whole... It's, it goes back to patriarchy. It's our conception that a woman cannot run the state. She's a front. She has to have a man behind her to tell her how to run everything, which is stupid. And then they found the graffiti just on a rock side, uh, not far away. Uh, the more accurate term is graffito. It's not graffiti in the sense that someone came with a spray can and painted. It's carved into the into the rock. And you can actually see uh, two people having sex. You can see a woman bending over and a person and a male penetrating her from behind. And because of its uh, closeness to the mortuary temple at Dirabalach, researchers assume that this is a depiction of Hachapsut having sex with her advisor. And he's, of course, in the dominant male pose, taking her from behind, which is proof that he was running the business. So the whole conception of this is just goes to show how uh, male-centered research still is and, and how, you know, the simple concept of of having a woman in charge seemed impossible for 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 researchers in of ancient Egypt. Just like when they found tombs with two skeletons, they would assume it was two males because there were weapons inside, so it can't be female. But it was actually a couple buried with their weapons. It's the same with the Birka warriors that I mentioned earlier from Sweden. It's weapons. It's male. Forget the fact that 50 years later, DNA showed it's a woman. It's all it's all preconceived. People are just, they go into something, they find some kind of find, 
And, you know, there's a joke in Israel, in archaeology, we like to tell a joke that there are researchers who already found what they're looking for. It's just that the dust is in their way. So it's something like that. I still have to mention your find that you showed me in uh, in the museum where you disproved a whole theory and pissed everyone off. That was absolutely hilarious. Ah, well, I like that's It's my hobby. Pissing everybody off. <laughs> you've got to you've got to mention it now. So I, I know this is not the subject we're talking about, but you still have to mention it very, very briefly. It. I'm going to let you tell it. Me? Why me? What? Because you're going to put me on the spot to see if I was listening. No, I'm sure. Okay. You're so it was a bread stamp from the fifth century BC. Yes. No, fifth century AD, Byzantine. Okay, which proved, and it was um, a a Jewish stamp, bread stamp, that proved that Jews were already in the area before other archaeologists and historians believed that they were, and you proved that they were there way before that. It's not that they were before. The thing is that the bread stamp is a Roman thing that they use in the army to stamp the bread so they know to which division the bread would go. So they would stamp it before baking, and then it would bake with the stamp in it, and you'd say, okay, 4th, ninth Legion, 11th Legion, whatever. So it's a bread stamp with a menorah Basically, it's a kosher stamp. It's to say this is a bread made by Jews for Jews. It's like kosher. You can eat it. It's like it doesn't have any pigs in it. Okay. So, um, but it's proof of a Jewish settlement in an area where we weren't sure there were ever Jews not that early, not fifth century AD, Byzantine period. So that was it. Yeah. And it's in the museum. So you know. And you dispelled that theory and people got annoyed at you. And all the religious radio stations want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do either of you have anything else you want to add before we move on to our next question? Any other interesting stories? Okay, so we'll talk about a little bit about, we've touched on this already, but I want to delve into it a little bit more, which is the public re- representation of trans history. So, for example, if I was to go into a museum, I'd probably say 90% of museums or probably even higher would have no representation of trans history at all. How can we make that better? How can we change this? And what do we do moving forward? Kick, kick us off. Okay, so I think there's two things here. And one of them comes back to terminology. So a lot of museums are afraid to use modern terminology to describe people who didn't use it about themselves. Um sometimes for the good reasons we've talked about, but often for reasons that have less to do with thinking about the kind of aspects of respecting and caring for people in the past are more just about adherence to what they see as historical accuracy over anything else, over thinking about the needs of their audience or the political agency the museums have. So what I'd love to see in museums is, first of all, acknowledgement of possibilities. So when we talked before about, you know, um, people whose lives could be interpreted in several different ways, actually making that clear that this life could be interpreted in several different ways rather than not saying anything at all. Because we live in a society that assumes everyone is straight and everyone is this until proven otherwise. So you have got to mention the alternative, more marginalized possibilities. Um, and also paying real attention to things like pronouns. It makes a big, big difference when you're talking about for example, a person who was assigned female at birth but lived as a male, whether you talk about that person as she, they or he, it makes a big difference in terms of how people are going to interpret it. And it therefore makes a big difference about 
in terms of whether that museum is propping up that narrative that trans people are new or whether it's doing its bit in dismantling it because places like museums and other public representations of history like podcasts um, have a really, really big impact on what the average person thinks about the past, way more than academics do. Nobody's reading what academics do. Um, yeah, that's my take. What do you think, Gary? I think it's, we have to first keep in mind that a good museum, a good display museum has a narrative. And if the transgender aspect of it fits the narrative, then it's fine. I don't think it should be forced just for the sake of forcing it to say they were transgender people. That doesn't serve the issue. I'll give you an example, but because what you're saying is right, you don't see it too much. And as a person who works as a guide in museums here in Berlin, I'll give you two examples that are connected from the Pergamon, the famous Pergamon who was just three months ago, closed for 14 years. So we'll have to come back later and see it. But there's of course the famous Ishtar gate in the Pergamon. And I would talk about it because this is me and this is my take and this is who I am. But after I would cover the whole cultural heritage theft issue, um, I would talk about Ishtar itself, which was, which was, she was a transgender goddess. We have written documents in, in Akkadian attesting to this. And then you continue, you get to the room of Uruk, which is Uruk is actually defined as the ancient, most ancient city in the world, 5,500 uh, BC. And you have the facade of the temple of Inanna. Now, Inanna is essentially the earliest reincarnation of Ishtar. She's a Sumerian Ishtar. She's also trans goddess. And in the facade, in the niches, you have depictions of, in, of Inanna. In each depiction, one is male and one is female. You can see it with your eyes. You can see that you're looking at a female here and a male here, and both of them are representing the same goddess. And you have poems by, oh, the name escapes me. Um, oh, the daughter of, 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 of Sargon, famous poet. Never mind. She would write poetry and she writes poetry about, um, about the transness of, of Inanna. It, we even have writings which attest to their ability to change people's gender at a whim. How much fun would that be, right? I mean, so, but, but none of this is mentioned in the museum. I mention it as a guide because it's part of my, my, my tour, it's part of, of what I want to say. And even if it's not, it's the right thing to do because that's part of, of who that character is. But again, it has to fit the narrative. I'm not sure the Pergamon is so modern in that sense, but they have 14 years pass the place up, so who knows what will change. Well, what kind of projects are you guys working on now that, apart from Gali, obviously you do it as a tour guide, but is there anything else you want to do to be able to improve the situation? I'm working on my book, which hopefully I'll find some representation and get it out. And it's basically, it. what I'm basically doing is taking a lot, a lot of research that's all buried in, in huge, thick, boring academic publications. And you know me, I write for the general public. I take something and I make it accessible to the general public. And that's what I'm doing, just showing how much History, ancient history, for at least 5,000 years old, goes back to to, uh, uh, to talks about transgenders. Just actually uncovering something like from, from 3,000 BC until the 1300s, something like that, like until the Middle Ages. That's probably more or less my spectrum of the book. I also have another small project, more personal. It's not for this podcast now, so no need to get into it. But, you know, 
it's it's it also I'm always it runs in my head because people are also so Puritan about sex in general. And you know, today we have twenty five thousand year old dildos, so it's like it's it's amazing to me why people think that humans didn't didn't have sex wasn't an important part of their lives for all time right now. People would prefer to believe people had guns twenty thousand years ago before they had a dildo. Don't know why. Um, so, yeah, a couple of things I'm working on. One of them is around um, improving that representation in museums. So I co-authored a toolkit called Gendering the Museum um, with a colleague, James Daybell, um, which is about finding new ways to tell different stories of gender or about objects um, by thinking about not just who owned and used them, but also about the whole life cycle of the object. So like the um, material it's made from and how that material was sourced and how the sourcing of that material affected the gender dynamics in the society that it came from. Um, um, so we're implementing that at the Royal Armouries Museum um, here in Leeds um, to be able to tell stories about arms and armor that are not just about this man and their toys. So that's been really fun. Um, and I'm working as well um, on the, in the early stages of a history of trans family. So thinking about how our ideas of the relationship between gender and biology and family have changed over time as well. And parenting a small human at the same time, um, which is, you know, both a both a joy and a research project. This has been really interesting and a great, well, great idea, actually, Kit. So thank you for inspiring me to get you onto this podcast. Before we finish, is there anything you guys want to plug? Obviously, Kit, remind our listeners the name of your book. Thanks so much. Um, it's Before We Were Trans, A New History of Gender. And thank you so, so much um, for having me. It's been a really, really fun talk with both of you. Perfect. Gally, anything you want to plug? Your book, perhaps? I had a lovely time as usual. Great to meet Kit. I'm sure we'll still be in touch after this. Yeah, we should also meet, you know, when you're not needing me for podcasting. Well, yes, you need to come to Warsaw, clearly. It has been great having you on, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result... We have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.